Well, good morning. It is uh, great to be here. And as Don was sharing at the beginning of the service, uh, what a change a year makes. And uh, last year, uh, I was here one Sunday of March the 8th, and it was a good Sunday. Um, and uh, then we sh shut the place down. I, I had some folks, some, some friends that said, well, how's it going down there since you started? I said, well, it, I, I think it's, well, I don't know. I said, I was there one week and preached and shut the place down. So, <laughs> but it's, it's good to be here this morning and to see you and worship with you to, together. And um, I really don't have anything to say uh, apart from Scripture. So I invite you to uh, open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, we'll read there in just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me give you a little background to this text. Paul, on his second missionary trip, after being run out of Thessalonica and being run out of Berea, he goes south to Athens and he stays there for a short period of time. And then he goes uh, west, uh, 20, 30 miles over to a city called Corinth. And at Corinth, uh, it was a major metropolis, a large city known for its wealth, its education, Hellenistic culture, Greek philosophy, especially known for its immorality, uh, a city with a Las Vegas reputation or like the city of Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, known as the world's playground. And I've been in both cities, Vegas and Dubai. And after you've seen all the pretty lights and after you've seen the great architecture there, if you're a follower of Jesus and you refrain from wanting to give all of your money away at gambling tables, or if you don't engage in uh, loose and immoral vices, you'll quickly discover that those cities like that are boring places to spend time in, certainly not places for you and I as followers of Christ to engage in. That was the city of Corinth. It could easily be compared to both of those places. And it was there that God worked supernaturally to bring together a team, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, along with Aquila and Priscilla. The five of them began to strategically engage the city with the message of the gospel. Luke records that these five individuals were testifying and persuading that Jesus was the way into salvation. And Luke records in chapter 18, verse 8, and by God's grace, many of the Corinthians heard the gospel, believed the gospel, were saved and baptized. Paul and that team began working, and for the next 18 months, after these people started coming to faith in Christ, began to pour themselves into these new converts, teaching them and mentoring them for the purpose of establishing a strong church in the city. And then after 18 months, Paul goes home. He returns to Antioch. He reports that, as he always does after a trip, he reports all that God had done to the church, and they celebrate and worship and pray. And then Paul and his team rest and kind of renew themselves. And then in Acts chapter 18, verse 23, it says that they leave Antioch, depart for their third trip, go back over the region of Galatia and Phrygia and revisit the cities, revisiting all of the churches where they had been previously, and the Bible says, in order, strengthening the disciples. 
And it's there on this third trip that they eventually find themselves back in the city of Ephesus. And while Paul and his brothers are there in Ephesus, they receive a letter. It's a letter from the church at Corinth. And there were some issues and there were some things going on in the church. And so Paul receives this letter. They had some questions on how they should handle things. And so Paul from Ephesus writes a letter to Corinth, to this church in Corinth, which is the letter we have in our Bibles. And the main purpose of this letter is to address some problems, some specific issues that this young congregation was faced with. Issues that if not addressed and corrected had the real potential to cause the church to become very sick and weak and possibly terminal. And one such issue that they were faced with was surrounding the subject of the resurrection. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it consists of 58 verses, the the classic biblical text in our Bibles entirely devoted to this single doctrine. Because it seems the Corinthians were entertaining some doubts and some questions about the resurrection. Questions like, was Jesus really raised? Is the resurrection true? And what about us? What happens to us when we die? When we die, will we be raised again? Is that true? And if we're raised, what kind of bodies are we going to have? What is it going to be like if the resurrection is really true? And so Paul writes, addressing many issues, this being one, and he Starts in chapter 15, so I invite you to read with me at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James and by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. I invite you to pray with me. Father, would you take that which is familiar and make it fresh and new for us? 
Let the message of your gospel stir us to measures of greater faith unto increased works for fruit which remains to your glory. For the sake of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In our text, Paul provides evidence for the resurrection, addressing their questions. Actually, he provides five specific evidences in this text for the resurrection of Christ. And I'd like to walk through these with you. First, from verses 1 and 2, we see the evidence of the resurrection in and through the evidence of personal experience. From personal experience. Uh, the idea is genuine gospel community communicates the gospel. The Corinthians and millions of others since then, including you and me, have heard the gospel, believe the gospel, have been saved, and our lives have been changed. One of the evidences of the resurrection is Christ living in us. Amen? I, I'm not the same guy that I was 40 years ago. My life is very different. Uh, most of you would not have enjoyed being around me 40 years ago, and I probably wouldn't have cared whether you enjoyed it or not. <laughs> pretty self-centered, pretty self-absorbed, thinking only about myself, my needs, really didn't have a heart for other people. Can anyone relate to my story? There's been a change in your life, evidence that Jesus is raised, that Jesus is alive, that he's living in you and me, and then he's at work. How? How is it? Well, he's changing us. There's a little placard on my desk in the office that says, please be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. All of us as believers, we're still a work in progress. Christ is alive, working, living in us. Paul to the Romans said in chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? He says, for it is the power of God unto salvation towards everyone who believes. And so when you and I are saved, we become new creatures, new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things pass away and all things are new, become new, become new, become new. He's changing us. One of the evidences of the resurrection that Jesus is alive is in us, especially as we gather together in community. If you'll notice in your Bible, the first two verses, Paul reflects back. He reflects back. He says, brethren, moreover, for this reason, I declare to you the gospel. Notice he doesn't say, I declared to you the gospel. He doesn't use past tense like he presented the gospel to them one time. He didn't declare the gospel just that once. They heard it, believed it, and were saved, and then that was the end of it. Rather, he says, I declare it to you. The verb tense is active, which means I declare it, and I declare it, and I declare it again and again and again. There are two purposes, active purposes of the gospel. One active purpose of the gospel is, is that it, it brings forth salvation. When Paul preached in Corinth, when engaging with people, he the Bible says, reasoned with them from the scriptures, giving testimony to Jesus, being persuasive, persuasive, uh, encouraging people to respond, to make a decision. 
Luke writes in chapter 18, verse 8 of the book of Acts, and many of the Corinthians, hearing the word, believed the word, were saved, and were baptized. And so the message of the gospel brings us to a right relationship with God. It brings forth salvation. In the text, Paul reminds them, I preached this message to you, you received it, and you are standing in it. You're living it out, which is, he says, evidence that you have been saved. Now, in verse 2, there's a qualifier there, if you have your Bible. Notice there, he says, now, if you hold fast, if you hold fast, he's talking about the gospel, unless you believed it in vain. Now, there is no way that Paul is referring to us or to any Christian there losing their salvation. He is not saying you are saved if you hold on to your faith, and if you don't hold on to your faith, you'll be lost. That's not what he's saying there at all. He's saying holding fast to the word, holding fast to the gospel is a test of unfeigned faith. In other words, it's an expression of true saving faith. When you're truly saved, you cling to the gospel. Jesus said in John 8, 31, regarding those who've been saved, he says, the evidence of being my disciple is that you will continue in my word. You'll hold fast to the gospel. And I would add that uh, we have some responsibility to do some holding. I mean, we, we have some responsibility there. But I want to remind you, the one who's doing most of the holding is him, right? He's the one who holds us. You, 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 Don, you remember that old hymn we used to sing? For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Any of y'all remember singing that old hymn, right? He holds us. He, he keeps that which we've committed. He's holding us. Jesus, I love John 10. Jesus said, and I give unto them eternal life, and no man is able to pluck them from my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck you, to pluck me from the Father's hand. He holds us. When we don't hold well, when we're not faithful, he's faithful. He holds us. When we're saved. And so one of the active purposes of the gospel message is it's the power of God unto salvation. Most of us grasp this part. We understand it. We've had some kind of experience personally where we've been saved. We heard the gospel. You remember the time? And when you heard it and the Holy Spirit began to convict you of your sins. And John 6, 44, Jesus said, no man comes to the Father unless the Spirit begins to draw them. And you remember, you remember that conviction and that sense that God was drawing you unto himself? And then you believed, you repented of your sins. God, I'm a sinner. And you confessed with your mouth, believed in your heart, and you were saved. You remember that day? Let me ask you a question. Is there evidence of it? In your life? Is there enough evidence in your life that you've been saved to convict you of being a disciple? Man, I hope so. I hope the evidence is overwhelming in your life. I, straight up, without hesitation, without any qualifiers, I hope that people who know you would say, that guy, that girl, they're a follower of Jesus. Listen to the way they talk. Listen to the way, watch the way they act. 
They're loving and caring and real and genuine and kind. And when they mess up and make mistakes and do things, you know what? They always seem to be sincere and they try to make things right. I hope the evidence for Hillcrest Baptist Church that we're followers of Jesus is overwhelming, that we're convicted, guilty as charged. Uh, there, there was a day in my life years and years ago where I was a Christian and I believed the gospel, but I, I, I kind of wanted to not stand out. I kind of wanted to be different. I kind of wanted to be a closet Christian, you know, and then it just, there's no victory in it. There's, and, and then, you know, at some point I thought, I'm going to come out of the closet. And came out. And, and then without, without any qualifiers, I hope that people know that about my life. hope that they know that about your life who you are, whose you are, that you're a follower of Christ, standing in the gospel, Paul says, holding fast to the gospel. Many and I were sitting last night in our family room with some friends that we've known for 25, 30 years. They're with us this morning, and uh, we're going to reminisce a bit. Any of, you, any of you do that kind of reminisce about people and friends and experiences that you've had and begin to remember so many people that we knew and loved and served the Lord with, were in church together with, gotten to know, and, and uh, many of them today, you can't find them. They're MIAs. I'm not judging anybody. You and I don't know anybody's heart, but it makes you wonder about their faith. Where are they? Where are they today? And that's... Doesn't seem like they're standing in the gospel. Doesn't mean that seem like they're holding fast, and it just makes you wonder about their faith. The second purpose of the gospel is it is a message that actively produces sanctification. You know, know that word sanctification? What is sanctification? Well, sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit working in us, changing how we live. The Bible says transforming us, freeing us from sinful habits and conforming us, producing more Christ-likeness in us, more Christ-like qualities in us where we love him more and as we love him more, we start loving more the things that he loves and we start staying away from the things that he hates. Setting us apart, that's sanctification. Setting us apart, the work of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Christ and for the purposes of God. In other words, we don't just hear the message of the gospel one time, respond in faith, get saved, and then move on from it. No, that's not, that's not how it works at all. That's what I used to think. But rather, we continue hearing the message, thinking on the message, meditating on it, remembering who Jesus is and what he did for us. And that's one of the things I appreciate most about gathering together, taking the Lord's Supper, right? Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Use your memory and reflect on the gospel over and over and over again. Because the same gospel message that saves us is the message that continues to change us, and it's called sanctification. Which is why, if you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, there's a theme all the way through it. You know that every crisis, every issue, every problem that those believers in that church faced, you know what his answer to it was? 
He makes a beeline right back to the gospel because the gospel applies to everything in our lives. It's not, it's not just a message that brings us to salvation. It's a message that brings us to being set apart for God in his purposes and serving. It's, just, it's a message of change. And so he keeps calling back to the gospel. When there were schisms, as are described in the early chapters, he says, I hear there's division and schism and strife and hostility among you. And some of you say you're of Cephas and some of you say you're of Paul and some of you say you're of Apollos. And he takes them back to the gospel. He said, did any of those brothers in the church die for you? Why is your allegiance to those guys? He takes them back to the gospel. When there was financial issues, when believers are suing each other in the church, he takes them back to the gospel. When there was sexual immorality going on, he takes them back to the gospel. When there was chaos in chapter 14, right before this, in their worship, there were some crazy things going on in the worship. He takes them here to chapter 15, he takes them to the gospel. For that which I received from the Lord, I also delivered unto you that Jesus Christ died on the third day, was buried, and was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. Takes them back to the gospel. And so we just need to continue to meditate on it and dwell on it, receive it. Whatever the situation in your life, whatever the challenge, whatever the test, you would do yourself well to meditate on the gospel. There's a, the evidence of personal experience that Christ is alive, that he's raised, and that evidence is the way that he's working us and in gospel communities. But the second evidence of the resurrection is that of the scriptures. Notice in verse 3 and 4, it's the most succinct description of the gospel in the entire Bible. Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. And notice in two places there, Two times he references the scriptures. Well, what are the scriptures? Well, he's referring to the Old Testament. Paul delivered to them this authoritative teaching from the Old Testament. He delivered to them what God had already delivered to them. You remember going through the book of Acts, Paul's strategy was always to engage with people. He didn't, he didn't wait and uh, sit back and just... You know, go to a hotel room, rest in some hotel lobby or wherever he, wherever he stayed in these cities and say, y'all come. No, he went out. He engaged with people. The Bible said he would go into synagogues and reason with Jews and he would go into the marketplaces and he would engage with people. And the Bible says he would always reason with them. He would make an appeal to them from the scriptures. Why did he do that? Because he knew that the Old Testament clearly foretold Christ. The Bible is very, Old Testament is very clear about his birth, about his life, about his suffering, about his death, and about his resurrection. Read sometime Isaiah 53 regarding his death. After Jesus be, was risen and began appearing to his disciples, I, there's a, a text in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, where some of you remember, you remember where there are two disciples and they were leaving Jerusalem and they were disciples of Christ, and after they saw him die on the cross, they were greatly disturbed and discouraged. And so Jesus appears to them on the road. And I want you to listen to verses 25 through 27. Jesus appears to these brothers and he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in that 
All the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then Luke says, and beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus began to expound to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. If you want evidence to believe in Jesus that he's risen and that he's alive, to have faith, stronger faith, test the scriptures. Don't just go by what everybody says about the scriptures. Some of you who are younger in high school and some of you are going to go off to universities and college settings. You're going to hear, it's just everywhere, you're going to hear people criticize the Bible. It's full of errors and full of inconsistencies and it fosters racism and it fosters slavery. And you're going to hear all these people say, and it's, it's evil and there's, it's, it's, all, it's just written by men. You're going to hear all kinds of criticism about Scripture. Listen, instead of just listening to all that, read it yourself. Read it for yourself. Test the Scriptures. God's Spirit will begin to bear witness with you to speak to you about the reality of the gospel. Peter, James, John, all quote the Old Testament. To encourage Timothy, Paul wrote to them, Timothy, I want you to remember something. All of the scriptures, all of it, Old Testament, inspired by God. It's God-breathed and it's profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training unto righteousness so that you as a young man might be thoroughly furnished, thoroughly equipped unto every good purpose, whatever God's purpose for your life might be. He'll equip you through this book. He'll bless you through his word. Study. And then he goes into study, Timothy. It's not only inspired. It's not going to help you if you don't study. Study to show yourself approved unto a God, a workman who doesn't need to be shamed, rightly cutting, rightly dividing the word of truth. Scriptures bear witness that Christ is alive. Third, the evidence for the resurrection is in verses 5 through 7. There were eyewitnesses. On multiple occasions, Jesus repeatedly taught his disciples. He said, the Son of Man is going to suffer many things, be rejected and killed, and after three days, he will rise again. In John chapter 11, Jesus claimed, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, he shall live. However, while these brothers heard Jesus say such things, they never seemed to really hear it with any understanding or real acceptance. And if you fast forward to the first day of the week, early in the morning, after they heard reports from Mary and Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome and Joanna, and they, these women had gone to the tomb and, and they come back and they share with the other disciples that uh, Jesus is alive, he's gone, and they begin to remember his word, the Bible says. And even after they remembered his word, the scripture said they still didn't believe. Such reports that Jesus was alive, it says, seemed like idle tales to them. The fact is they refused to believe that he had been risen from the dead. They wavered severely so. They, they couldn't believe it. It just reminds you as you read the response to his crucifixion and failure to have faith in the resurrection, it just reminds you of how many times through the Gospels Jesus marveled. He marveled at their unbelief. Oh, ye of little faith, why are you so slow to believe in me? Once they saw him crucified, 
Once they watched him die on the cross, these brothers turned into spiritual mush. Despite everything contrary to what they had been taught, they just kind of checked out in the faith department. They were lost, bewildered. And most, for the most part, they returned back to their former lives. The text says Jesus first appeared to Mary and the other women. Then he appears to Peter. And we don't know the details surrounding when and where he appeared to Peter. But, you know, prior to this time, Peter was full of remorse and guilt. And remember, he had denied Jesus three times, something that he didn't think he would ever do. But he cowered. He failed. He was weak. So Jesus appears to him, which I would propose to you, Peter needed to see. And he, he was the one that said to, you remember, to Peter, upon this confession, your recognition, your faith in me, you're the one that I'll, you know, this kind of confession I'll, I'll build my church upon. And then it says he appeared to the other 12, and probably later in that day, John, recorder, John 20 records that probably that later that evening on the first day, these, these brothers would be the apostles, the leaders of the church. And so Jesus appears to them, and then it says he appears to over 500 brethren at one time, all who saw him. And finally, it says he appears to James, his half-brother. John chapter 7, verse 5, it said that Jesus' brothers, his siblings, none of them believed in him. None of them believed that he was the Messiah. And Jesus appears to James, his half-brother, and once James sees that Jesus is alive, he's changed. And this James becomes a powerful force, a leader in the church. Once they saw him, once they heard him speak, once they touched him with their hands, these confused, cowardly, faithless band of brothers in a few years were responsible for spreading the gospel across the entire Roman Empire. <laughs> Refusing to be silenced. You remember in the book of Acts when they were arrested and thrown into prison and they were threatened and they were beaten. You never see them one time saying, oh God, take away the persecution. Oh God, take away the opposition. You never see that prayer. You see the other. God, give us greater boldness. Give us greater courage. Help us never to cower. Help us never to be worried what people are going to think about us. We are different. We are peculiar. We're God's royal people, his chosen race, a Different kind of people, different values, different perspectives. Help us, God, never to back off. And so they lovingly continue to advance the gospel. No amount of ridicule, threat of prison, torture, even death would cause them to back down. How can you explain such a change in those brothers if they weren't convinced that Jesus was alive? They were clear. They were certain no one had ever done before or since what Jesus did. He defeated death, conquered the grave. Oh, grave, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God. Jesus has defeated it for us. Did you know that all of these apostles... These original doubters, these skeptics, skeptics, these brothers who were weak in faith, do you know that every one of them, after they saw Jesus alive, were martyred? They all died because they knew he was alive. They'd seen him. 
We know from history, Peter, this one who prior to Pentecost, prior to being dwelled by the Spirit of God, this cowardly brother. You remember a little girl there while he's warming out himself outside of the, the courtyard where Pilate lived. You remember this, this girl said, oh, I, aren't you one of those followers of Jesus? And you remember even in front of a little girl, he swears, I don't know him. I never met him. Cowers. And then after he saw Jesus alive and after he was indwelled with the Holy Spirit, what a force, what a change. We know from history that Peter never denied Jesus again. Never. In fact, we know that because of his faith, Peter died by crucifixion. He was hung on a cross like his Savior. And Peter, when you read the, his letters of 1 Peter and 2 Peter, you read about his, how he glories in the suffering, that he might share in the sufferings of Christ. He was crucified like his Lord. But did you know that before they crucified him, he made a special request. He said, would you, would you crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to die like my Lord? You see, these brothers who, if they weren't sure that Jesus is alive, they wouldn't have done that. Witnesses, proof that Jesus was raised. The fourth witness that he, let me hurry, was the witness of that of a special witness. A special witness. Look at verses 8 and 10. Who is that special witness here? It's, well, it was Paul himself. He was not among any of those first witnesses who saw Jesus. In fact, in verse 8, he says, I was the last of all to see him. And probably several years later after Jesus was raised is when Saul at that time has this encounter on the Damascus road and he meets Jesus. He says in the text, I was one who, was, who had an untimely birth, meaning he had no hope of ever seeing Jesus. He came too late. The Lord Jesus was gone. But God, by divine provision, he says, he appeared to me also. Aren't you glad that he revealed himself to you in a personal way? Paul says of himself, I was one of the least deserving to, to meet the Savior because of my past. He says, I was an evil, violent persecutor. That's who I was. So undeserving of his mercy and grace. And Jesus saves him. And let me just say this to you this morning and anyone who might watch this through Facebook or live stream right now, there, there are so many people who, who have a past. Any of you like that? I mean, you've got a past. And you've done some pretty horrific things. Maybe hurt some people. Cheated some people. Done some pretty terrible things some things that you're ashamed of and you, the enemy would tell you that you're just too bad. You've done too much. God doesn't love you. God's not going to forgive you. You're just too bad, too entrenched in your sins. So if, you, if you ever have those kind of thoughts, I want you to just be straight up. That is a lie. That's a lie from the enemy who is accusing you. I've known men and women who, 
who wasted years, wasted years, and they're older in life, and they think, it's too late now. God won't, God won't save me now. I, I should have done it when I was in my teens or 20s and 30s, but I'm, I'm an old person now. God, it's too late. And that's a lie. It's from the accuser. Listen, if anyone did not deserve forgiveness and mercy and grace, it was the apostle Paul, an insolent fellow he was, persecuting Christians, responsible for their death. And God saved him. He called him. and said, Paul, you'll be a chosen instrument of mine, a, a light to the Gentiles, one who will suffer much for my sake. On that Damascus road, Damascus road, he meets Jesus. The risen Savior called him by name. You remember? Saul, Saul, why are you fighting against me? Why are you resisting me? Why are you persecuting me? He meets Jesus, called his name. And after that time, from that point forward, Paul said, I, I wanted to ensure that God's grace towards me was not in vain. In other words, Paul said, I want to make sure that God's grace wasn't wasted on me. And he said, so I want to labor. I want to labor for him. I want to serve him. He, he, he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, for the love of Christ, the grace and the mercy of God, it constrains me. It compels me. Whoa, if I don't serve the Lord. Whoa, if I don't live for Jesus. He was under compulsion. God had his life. Is that true of you? There's a call upon your life. God's called you by name. He's demonstrated his grace towards you. Don't, don't waste it. Don't waste your life. <laughs> we, were, we were sharing last night, and my friend Will reminded me of a, an illustration that was shared at a missions conference several years ago by John Piper. And Piper was speaking to college students, and he told the story about a couple who were there. They were elderly couple, and they were past retirement, or in their retirement years, but in their retirement years, they chose to go overseas and to use their years, to use their days to advance the gospel to unreached peoples. And there was a massive tsunami who hit in the island of Sumatra up in Aceh, and it took the lives of thousands and thousands of people, and this, this couple was lost. Senior adults in Aceh, trying to share the gospel with Muslims, and they perished. And there were many people who said, oh, what a waste. What a waste. To lose life like that. And then Piper tells the story of another senior adult couple from the north, They'd worked and worked and saved and saved and pretty good incomes and they retired early and decided to move south to Florida where it was warm and got a nice condo on the beach and a boat and they lived out the rest of their years on the seashore walking up and down the beaches of Florida collecting seashells. Seashells. I want to ask you this question, which of those two scenarios is more of a waste? More of a waste. 
Don't waste the grace of God on your life. Determine. God, by your grace that you've shown me, God, I, I want to make a difference for you. I want to use my life for your glory, for your purposes. I want to advance your gospel and love people. I want to serve my church. I want to be the best husband, the best dad, the best spouse I can be. I want to love my kids and love my neighbors. God, I want to just be a light for you. I want to be salt for you. I want to have influence for other people. Don't waste your life. Can you imagine standing before the Lord Jesus Christ on judgment day and standing before him and saying, look at all of our seashells. God saved the Apostle Paul. Used his life immensely for the purposes of God, for kingdom purposes. And last, evidence for the resurrection is the message itself. Notice in verse 11, down through the ages from the apostles to our present day, God continues to reveal himself through the same message, the same gospel. Through proclamation, you and I opening our mouths and sharing with others the good news. Paul said, whether it's me or whether it's any other, we preach and so you believe. And the message continues. It continues. For I delivered to you that which I also received, that Christ died according to the scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Without faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Christian message of the gospel is worthless. I would not be a Christian. I would not follow Jesus if I didn't believe in the resurrection. Paul said it best, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, which also means that those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ have really perished. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then every time we gather with a loved one at a funeral, we have no hope. What we say is just soothing, comforting words to make each other feel better, but there's nothing to it if Christ hasn't been raised. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain, it's empty and vain, and your faith is empty and vain. The resurrection is the cornerstone of all biblical Christianity. Everything rests and is built upon it. Pull it out and it all collapses. And I was reading a book this week by Tim Keller on the resurrection. And he made in this book a quote. He said, if, if the resurrection is true, then nothing else in life really matters. And if the resurrection is false... Nothing else in this life really matters. There was an old lady in my first church, the western part of the state of Kentucky, a little coal mining town. Her name was Audrey Sigler. You remember? And she was a little old lady when I went to that church. And, and uh, I think she was in her 90s. And I used to love to visit with Audrey, Miss Sigler, and she had strong faith, and she used to have this saying. It's always stayed with me. She said, she said, Brother Charlie, Jesus saves, Jesus keeps, and Jesus satisfies. 
He's alive. He reigns and he rules. He saves, he holds us, and he sanctifies. If anyone confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if they believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. Let me ask you two questions in closing. Do you know him? Has he called your name? Have you responded in faith? Do you know him? If you don't know him, today would be a fine day. On Easter Sunday, be a fine day to meet him. And the second question, do you belong to him? 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said, for I'm not my own. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I want to glorify God with my, with my life, with my body. Do you know him? Do you belong to him? Let's pray together.